and 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 I I I apologize, but I wanted to get a chance to listen to more of your your podcast and to get a sense of your focus. So maybe maybe you could tell me a little bit about your podcast. I looked at it. I didn't listen to all of them. Oh, that's fair. That's fair enough. Uh, Sorry about that. No, it's... You're way busier than we are. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) We record them and we don't listen to them, so... Okay. (laughs) Oh my gosh. This is the AT Banter Podcast, a balanced and entertaining look at assistive technology, accessibility, and its importance in people's lives. Join Rob Minot, Ryan Fleury, and Steve Barclay as they banter with people around the world about anything and everything regarding assistive technology and the disability community. Now, on with the show. Hey, and welcome to another episode of AT Banter. Banter, 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 banter. Not just two banners this week going all the way yeah totally we, better, well, we do have a big show uh, uh my name is rob minot today joining me mr ryan flurry hello uh no steve barkley today he's out again uh so you're stuck with us everybody and our guest well let's talk a little bit about our guest because actually i want to get right to our <laughs> guest because i'm very excited to be talking to her uh who are we talking to Today we are talking with Kelly Godo, who is the CEO of uh, Godo Media Research. That's right. We could go through <laughs> her credentials, but that would be like an hour show as it is. I can't. I I am shocked that we got no, her no, no, on the no, show. No, no, no. I got her on the show. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> that you no got her. I and right? uh, I know. Yeah, this, it's it, it's interesting. This this show kind of came together. On a, I don't like. I don't even know how it came together, but here we are. Here we are. But uh, I, we're gonna let her speak for herself. But uh, yes, uh, she has been in the industry for a long time, looking into uh, user design and you know. Uh, uh, I don't even know. We don't even know. That's how. That's how deep this goes. That's we right. don't even know what she does. Read the links in the show notes, and that'll give you a much better description of, of who she is. So, remember last week we had a staff meeting at Mr. Barclays. Yeah. And we had cookies. Yeah. And you told me for today's show. Yeah. I needed to get you cookies. Oh yeah. So right. I didn't get you cookies, mm-hmm. but I got you the next best thing. You can't have them all. Oh, damn. You can have one or two. What is bum, it? What? It's, it's Holy cookie. Cow. It's I, cookie-like. I think I don't think I've had a wagon wheel since, like, 1982. <laughs> That's what I was thinking, so I had to buy them. So you can have a couple. Thank you, sir. <laughs> well, this this does step it up from Barclays. They had they had the raspberry filled ones too. It was like, no, Linda says, you got to get the original. Yeah, you got to get the yeah, Linda's Linda's a very smart lady. But do you think they've gotten smaller as we've gotten older? Got, they look a little smaller, <laughs> I'm going to be honest. Yeah. So for those who don't know, a wagon wheel is kind of two cookies with a marshmallow filling and the whole thing covered in chocolate. Who doesn't know what a wagon wheel is? I don't know. There AT, might be people who don't know. Cowbell at atbanter.com <laughs> if you don't know what a wagon wheel is. Not marshmallow oh. goodness. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. Well, now, there you just, go. now everyone can just listen to me eat. <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. Mm-hmm. Figured you'd like that better than cookies. Yeah. Look at you. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. Barkley's going to have to step it up for the next <laughs> meeting. Then. I like this. It's just like an arms race of That's right. snacks they can feed Rob. <laughs> okay. Well, while I'm eating, uh, let's let's bring on Kelly. I'll try not to eat in her ear. I'll try not to eat in her ear. Okay. So, hello. Hello. (laughs) I'm Ryan, and in the room with me, Kelly, is my co-host, Rob Minot. Hello. Hey there. Yeah, and Rob and I have been talking about this back and forth for the past week as well, and I don't know if I came across you somehow on YouTube (laughs) or Twitter. (laughs) Like, I just had you in my list of 
people to invite to be on the podcast right for a while and then you're like and you're like who is she and what does she do and then you look me up and you're like huh well then we still have then we still asked ourselves who is she and what does she do <laughs> exactly that's right that's right and then i sent you some links and you're like huh who is she and what so, does she do yeah it is i can't even explain it to my mom so it's hard no this is amazing to meet you guys uh this is exactly the world i want to be in and so i started go to media all one word, all lowercase, back in 2001. And I was convinced that we could create what's now called user experience, but take psychology and research and take information design and then take brand experience and put the three together into one discipline. And I had previously a a company called idea.com and I was able to help grow that to 1,800 people. And we started all these divisions. And at the same time, I decided to write a book. And the book was called Web Redesign. And so this all came out at the same time in 2001 when everything imploded in the Bay Area. Right. And so I, I was on a rafting trip up in Alaska. And that's another story. But I was just <laughs> off in the wild for 14 days. And I thought, what do I want to do? And so the book had just come out and I decided to start this company. So I came back to the Bay Area and it was dead and desolate. And the day my book came out was September 11th, 2001, if you can imagine. (laughs) So no one came to the book opening Mm -hmm. and my mom called from the airport and said, you know, turn on the TV, Mm -hmm. just watch. And so that was canceled. And that was basically the start of the whole company. It was almost in complete isolation, desolation, start this company, believe in this term that wasn't even in existence yet called user experience. And so some people at conferences will say, oh, Kelly, you helped start the field of user experience. And I say, oh my gosh, that's a big label. But I guess it wasn't around when I started and now it is, and I'm old. And, you know, so (laughs) I'll I'll grandmother myself into that term, but Mm. But that's really how the company started. And so really interestingly, I have the best people I've ever worked with in my life, and I still work with them. So my team, I've, I've managed to, to work with for almost 22 years now, and most of them, and they're the best people I know and the best people I've ever had the honor of working with. And we just believe in user experience. And so at GoToMedia, we apply it to interface design and application design and website design. And we do strategy work and, you know, we combine research and do all of that, but mostly we're, we're building products. And one of the most exciting kinds of work that we have done is in car and working with interfaces and working a lot with voice and a little bit with gestures and just starting to do some work with AI and, and in-car driving experiences. And so that's the go to media side of the world. It, it must, it must be, it must be interesting because, uh, it's almost a thankless discipline because it, it feels like the better a user experience is designed, the more invisible it is. It, the, you know, the that's less, right. the less that people really notice it, it just, cause it feels comfortable. It just feels natural to them. So they don't even realize you know, what, what kind of a process goes into actually making such a, such a streamlined and comfortable user experience? Yes. And every time I see the word you, or the acronym UX, I always want to take away this term user because it feels very impersonal and it's just about people and about their experiences. And I was walking I went on a long hike this weekend and sometimes that's when you think the best. And I thought, what is the word to best describe exactly what you just talked about is this elimination of friction and this idea of, of what kind of experience people are actually looking for. And you know, the word that I came up with, this is the big word, authenticity. People want an authentic experience. They want to believe in the company. They want to have a real emotional connection with that experience. But part of that could be not having any friction and that's really hard to define. So I I believe if people have an authentic connection with the product and the company that they're using, and maybe it's an ecosystem that they're going to 
come back and want more. And it's because of that authenticity. And I realized that's who I am as a person in the company that I've created. I, I want to be as transparent and as authentic as I can. And, you know, I feel lucky to work with these people that I've worked with my whole life practically, but we're still together. We're still building products and we, we believe in what we do. And it's because it's an authentic thing for all of us. So, so that's the word I came up with this weekend. I don't know if it'll stick, but, but that's kind of where I think we are these days. Back in 2001, everything was shifting and changing around what they then called wireless. So think back to 2001. I don't know how old you guys are, but. Oh, we remember. (laughs) So, So there was this thing called the wireless world web and, or no, sorry, the wireless world forum, WWF. And I joined it and it was people all over the world that started talking about this wireless connection that we were going towards. So in 2003, I decided to take a year off or not a year off, sorry, I like a month off. And I was, I was going to redefine what this wireless world meant. And so I actually went to New Zealand and I just hopped on a plane and ended up somewhere and ended up getting driven to another place on top of a hill overlooking the water, no internet connection. And I made them install internet and I actually stayed there for about four months. <laughs> and, and I wrote a paper that actually became one of the primers that Adobe used to start what's called mobile ethnography. And it was, it was about the mobile user experience, but we weren't calling it mobile then. So I was able to connect at that time with people all over the world and we formed a consortium that now is called UX Fellows. And it's a group of 27 countries that all focuses on research and mobile design. And, um, and so that's sort of this weird accumulation of, of what was happening. And at the same time, with this connection, I connected with someone in Finland, in, in Espo, and who was their client. Nokia. And so we became the US arm for ethnography in the mobile space for Nokia. And I wasn't able to talk about the work we were doing, but it was so interesting. And it was, it was all about, gosh, if you could do something, what would it be? If you could do anything, what would it be? And people would brainstorm and say, oh my gosh, well, if if I had a the ability to to figure out if I was near a gas station or if something was open or if the surf was high or low at that moment, that would be amazing. And so we would go out and investigate and ride with people and, and talk to them and get their stories and start to build out what this mobile experience could look like. What could search look like? What, what, what would it look like on a handheld device? And then there was this really amazing piece. And I will get back to what you said about there being a kind of a PhD factor in this where we were working with the PhDs in Finland and they were teaching us about how to use different models and different approaches to research. And one of them was called the magic thing. So the magic thing is, is a, is a, is a literal object that you give properties to, and you might be able to whip something out on a 3d printer nowadays But at that time, it would just be something that you could hold that has a certain weight and a certain feel. And then we would go out and say, okay, you, you're a truck driver. What can you do with this device? Here's the properties that it has. It has the ability to scan. It can scan your barcodes. It can scan your RFID tags. What would you like to do with this? And so then they go, oh. And so we would do a follow along. We would have them hold this and we would have them verbally describe and brainstorm and then eventually do a diary study on all the different instances they would use that magic thing in their daily life. And so it's a prompt and it's an artifact that would allow brainstorming to happen contextually. One of my researchers was eight months pregnant. And so she went and did a follow-on with a 14-year-old boy at his boys-only private school <laughs> with the magic thing. 
<laughs> and and got a sense of when he would scan and what he would do with it. And it was the most awkward and interesting piece of research <laughs> that I think oh, that boy. we've ever done. So um, I think he was he was just a little embarrassed. Yeah, right. Uh, so we try and be, you know, slightly incognito. Uh, one other thing, I remember doing drive driving research and we would have three people from Finland come and they would sit in the back and all three of them would just be completely silent and serious. And we're trying to make the subject feel at ease. We've got cameras on them and all this kind of stuff. And then we have these three people from Finland in the back seat. Just it, it created the most awkward situation. And so... You know, we're always trying to create new ways of, of creating natural behavior when we're doing research. So contextual research is a big piece of what we do. Right. And the accumulation of all of this in my story is that I launched a separate division of the company called Go to Research. And Go to Research exists as a division and an entity focused on contextual research and ethnography and design thinking as output. So it's more generative in nature. And we're thinking about what could happen in the future. And so we've done so much work in the space and it's been really amazing work, the best work that I've ever been able to work on and, and really excited about the output. It's really interesting hearing all this um, from sort of an outsider point of view, because I think, you know, as consumers, to us, these services, the, this technology just kind of shows up one day. You know, it's just like, you know, one day we, we had flip phones and then the next day we had smartphones and, and we were able to do things like find the nearest gas station with Google Maps. From the outside, you forget that, you know, people like you are working on these things years ahead of time. Um, developing yes. them and, and nurturing them into existence. So I don't know, it's, it's sort of, it's fascinating to hear, especially that, you know, you guys are working on this, you know, back in the, the flip phone days. Absolutely. Yeah, it was amazing to be a part of that whole movement. And at that time, we were waiting for the U.S. to catch up, but Finland and Nokia and Japan were so far ahead of everything that was going on Korea, uh, Asia, it was just everyone had two phones already and, and it was only 67% penetrated in the U.S. and it was 99% penetrated overseas. So we were way, way behind. People didn't want to change. And then guess what happened? 2007, <laughs> the Jobs. iPhone came out and, yep. and everything changed. And, and we were actually working with uh, the Galaxy. Um, Samsung was releasing a new phone and we had gone out and done a ton of research uh, at the time on behalf of Samsung. And I think I can say that it's been a while. And we interviewed people over and over and over. We did all these intercepts and we videotaped everything because we really like to storytell. And everyone said, Samsung, hmm, I guess I think about my refrigerator. Yep. No one at all thought about phones. It just right. wasn't even in their vocabulary. And this was 2009, 2010. And then the Galaxy came out and everything changed. Yes. And we actually wanted to show the video clips to the leadership at Samsung, but they they did not want to show it. They didn't want to offend the C-levels or, or the, you know, those, the teams over there because um, they believed Samsung was, you know, just prevalent everywhere. Mm. But I think if they saw the before and after, they would have just been amazed at the success of their launch. And, you know, uh, there, there is just so much brand equity in the iPhone. So there's lots and lots of story around that, but I hate telling iPhone stories, but <laughs> Well, you know, it, it's funny because, you know, the, the, the advent of the iPhone was also a really big moment um, in terms of assistive technology. Um, mm -hmm. And that's really was the, the catalyst that has, has driven the assistive technology to the point where it is today, which I would say um, technologically uh, we're, we're in one of the most powerful positions that we ever have been in terms of having these these um, devices in our pockets that are not only very powerful mainstream devices, but also have this um, accessibility built into them. Um, yes. and, and Apple was a big part of driving that forward because they were the first on the, you know, on the block to, to do that. And everybody's been playing catch up uh, ever since. Yep. Yep. 
And I know that even recently, and this was 2016, so I'm sure it's it's changed by now, but websites like Medium weren't fully accessible. You could just scroll down and then it would say more, but the more part from what I understood wasn't accessible. And so companies are still having to understand and learn how the screen readers work and, and right. what works and what doesn't work. Um, Snapchat, I believe, wasn't fully mm -hmm. accessible. I, right. I had some really interesting clips that I took of people trying to show me how they didn't work. And I videotaped it and I was going to send it to these companies and just, you know, how usability testing and the evidence-based video, you're just like, here it is, fix it. So I never did, but I, I'm sure that they, they've gotten pressure. So I, I haven't checked back, but I don't know if they're, they're working or not working yet in an accessible manner. Yeah, well, you know, it, and that's the thing that that is improving, but there's still a, lo a long way to go is that, um, you know, a lot of developers, a lot of companies don't think of accessibility initially, um, they'll design a product, and they'll release the product. And then if they do get some sort of pressure, consumer pressure, uh, or demand, you know, they might go back and and tack on some sort of a, an accessibility fix for it. But but they don't necessarily think of accessibility in the development process, which is a shame because things would be a lot easier uh, if they did, because they wouldn't have to go back and, and sort of retrofit um, accessibility into it. But That's right. That's right. Well, you know, a lot of the work that we're doing now is with voice. So we have partnered with a company called Kaisisto and they are an offshoot of SRI and they developed Siri, of course, originally. And there's kind of an agreement um, with the Stanford Research Institute and all of the technologies is that there's part of the licensing that goes to an incubator and that incubator then can use the technology and then put out products. So right. through that incubator, I've worked with two different companies that were using AI or voice technologies. And the one that was the most interesting was Kaisisto. And so Kaisisto is online banking, but it's all voice enabled. Wow. And I think you've seen a lot of this type of technology now roll into the app. So all of a sudden you can talk to and have natural language interaction between your banking app. And that's just happened in the last month, I think. And so that's the kind of world that we've been in for a while. And so thinking about user experience and in my world is designing the interfaces, be it audio or touch or a combination. Um, that is really where we get back to universal design. So we sort of started out by saying universal design was something that was interesting as a topic, but it really excited me when I, I, I talked to a friend of mine who's a PhD and one of my best friends and I was telling her what I was doing and she said, oh, well, we've been doing that for years. We've been really focusing on universal design. And I said, well, what's that? And she's like, oh, and she told me about it. This was years ago. And as I researched it, I realized, and, and universal design is basically designing for any anyone and everyone, but starting off with a use case where it might be an assistive uh, assistive piece of something that you're designing. Right. So it's not a technology, it's, it's design as a whole. And the story that I always use to, to illustrate this is when the curb cut, do you guys know what a yep. curb cut yep. is? Yep. Right. Yep. So I'm sure, of course, you know, the curb cut story. So the curb cut was introduced in Berkeley right after the war and all the veterans were coming back in wheelchairs. So they decided to redesign their streets to have access for wheelchairs. And lo and behold, anyone with a shopping cart or a bike or a skateboard or, you know, anyone that had a wheeled device could use the curb cut. And so while it was designed for someone coming back as a veteran in a wheelchair, it was actually utilized by everyone. Right. And so flipping forward, you have closed caption and it's like, OK, that is for people that need to be able to see and they can't hear. And that makes sense. But move into a bar scenario and we're at a noisy bar and we want to watch the Warriors game and we want to yeah. see what's going on and we want the captions to be on. So again, designed first for someone that might be hearing impaired, ending up affecting everyone in a really yeah. positive way. So I've begun to think of assistive technology and adaptive design, maybe universal design integrated into contextual settings. And so 
we can all be situationally disabled at one point or another yeah. in our daily lives. Right. So for instance, if you're driving and you get a text message, you don't want to necessarily read that while you're driving down the freeway. So now if you're able to click and use voice, um, you take that situationally disabled moment and then use adaptive and assistive technologies to give you what you need at the right moment at the right time. Right. And that's really what we're designing right now is we're not designing for a single use case. It's a contextual experience and it's situational. And so we want to create fluid experiences that have a number of different modalities included so that you can access that information in different ways. When you do all your research for a particular company, I'm assuming all that research goes back to the company and they either, you know, say, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll incorporate these changes or we'll, we'll, we'll take your advice. And, you know, sometimes things will change. Other times things won't. Why do you think the user experience hasn't really made it yet into our home electronics like TVs and being able to switch inputs or, or channel guides and finding out what's on at a specific time, home theater receivers, anything with a, an LCD screen. Like there's, these, these products have been around for decades, and yet that ex user experience hasn't really changed. It is so frustrating, isn't it? It is. I've been working in the space for as many years as you can, and it all gets back to silos and cross-functional teams that aren't really cross-functional. And it, it, it does, it, I was thinking about on my walk this weekend, why why are these technologies still not working and what is going on? And I know with smart home systems, you know, they're starting to get more integration, mm -hmm. but I think there's two answers and one, I'll just offer this up from the corporate standpoint in all the work that we've done with bigger orgs and looking at components and where our research and where our advice can help. There's two inroads. One is working directly with the product teams and making changes to an interface, a UI and actually fixing little things that are buggy or they're not flowing, like shortening a time frame to sign up or an onboarding process, looking at what's happening during, you know, initial three weeks or three months of use, and then prioritizing those fixes. So there's kind of an engineering centric user experience that we can articulate and fix. And that is on the level of usability. And that's, you know, can I use this? As we get up the ladder into actual integration, it becomes a business decision. Mm -hmm. And obviously in the world of Microsoft, when everyone was on Microsoft systems, it all worked seamlessly. And so people loved that and they bought into it. When Apple took over, everything worked seamlessly and people bought into that. And Google is doing the same thing with their home you know, kit and everything that's going on. Right. And so you almost then on the flip side, have to buy into this one structured ecosystem. Yep. And honestly, I think that's a little scary too. Yep. Yeah. So everything's not always going to talk to each other. And I just became extremely passionate about open APIs and about getting, you know, like Apple, um, takes the thumb print or the thumb click mm -hmm. and they patent that and then connect is patenting their gestures. Right. And so, you know, getting to an understanding of accessibility across all gestures, for instance, and making them universal and um, WW3 kind of stuff, you know, where we're trying to make all of these interactions universal and making all the ports universal. It's USB-C. Right, right. You know, what, what, what is the port? And so it really, this is the flip side. It gets back to standards. Yeah. And so all the work that IEEE is doing in the IEEE um, Standards Association, and I got asked to be on the standards group for mobile. It, it's a it's a push and pull and a fight between all these corporations to give up their proprietary rights. Mm -hmm. Right. And they, and they won't. And so you can bring it all down to the level of open standards and you can say, please make an open standard for this and make it accessible for everyone. And what do they lose financially by doing this? What do they lose for their proprietary systems? You know, so it, 
it, there's so many answers yeah. to that question is why yeah. is it not working? I mean, I, I can't believe this is what I can't believe. You get into your car and I have a nice car, a nice manufacturer. Why doesn't the time change automatically <laughs> when there's a time zone change? I mean, you're spending X amount of dollars yeah. for these cars. Mm-hmm. Yep. And I don't, I do not understand that. I mean, and I get that there's more integrated systems and, you know, it's, it's working better now, but, th- but that is something that truly baffles me. And we've done a lot of in-car work and, and I, I don't understand it. It is frustrating, mm. but it really does get down to standards, corporations and standards. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, we're, we're big proponents of it, uh, of, of, you know, the idea of universal design and, and standards and stuff. And, and, you know, we're always talking about it, but you know, that, you have to admit that, you know, there's obviously there's a lot of cogs and, and, and the, you know, the, the process goes very deep um, within, you know, different corporations and stuff. And so it's not just as easy to, to just say, well, they should just do it. Like just, just do it, just make standards. So, you know, in a, in a way it's unfortunate, but you know, at the same time it, 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 you know, you can understand it. Yeah, even micropayments and the financial world back in 2003 and all of the EU, and I don't even think there was EU. I Now I can't remember who was meeting, but Europe was meeting and all these groups had these meetups to try and figure out standards that they could use to transfer money back and forth so that we could have payment systems on the phone. And no one could agree. And it was it really is a negotiation at a level that's the highest level of government that needs to agree on all these things in order for it to, to work for the masses. And so that's why, you know, Google does its own thing and Apple does its own thing and Microsoft does its own thing. And then they have to own that. And then you have to buy into all their systems and they have to work together Mm -hmm. because they then have control over those ecosystems themselves. So it is kind of interesting. There's a little bit of a disconnect between, some of the some of the emerging technology now, like digital assistants, for example, um, to some to some people are a little creepy, or even the the smartphone itself, the psychology behind that, and this idea of digital addiction, you mm-hmm. know, phone addiction. Um, yep. You know, there's there's really there's some pushback against some of this technology on, on the mainstream level, but yet something like a digital assistant or the smartphone is such a powerful piece of assistive assistive technology technology that could have such a huge difference in somebody who may need it as a piece of AT. So there's, there's, you know, there's an interesting sort of push and pull there. I I feel with the technology. I think we're going to have to meet for drinks sometime. I don't know (laughs) when, but I'm often up in Seattle and I'll, I'll journey up to Vancouver and meet up with you. Absolutely. But yes. Um, it's, it's kind of an amazing, an amazing thing. So I, I spoke about digital addiction for years and years and years, and I was sort of blasted by it because people would say, wow, Kelly, that's not really helping your business, is it? And I'd say, (laughs) well, no, but I'm, I'm really concerned uh, about what's happening. And I, I have kind of this diagram of a man devolving into someone that's just on their phone all the time. Mm -hmm. And at the time, Zynga was huge, huge. They were making so much money. Everyone was cashing out. And so back in 2009, 2010, I was like, okay, but Korea, South Korea has said they are going to ban all textbooks by the year 2015. Right. Oof. And that was an announcement. And so flash forward, not only did they stop that initiative, but they have started to treat young people and even three-year-olds for digital addiction. There's an image and a story of a little girl who's three years old clutching her iPad like you would a teddy bear. And when the battery dies, she becomes really anxious. Mm -hmm. And that's the kind of psychological trauma that they're treating right now with young adults over there and young children. And then they have camps that are just digital detox camps. And, um, yeah, so my kids are not allowed on technology. Um, they, of course, can text once in a while, you know, um, their grandma or something like that. They're allowed to look at music and things like that. But we are part of the Waldorf school system and they 
actually don't allow technology in the school and we have agreements for screen time outside of the school. So um, we're really eliminating screen time and trying to keep the brain functioning. And there's a lot of research that shows that the neurons in the brain are being rewired in today's youth Mm -hmm. to only, only work with short attention spans. And I personally want to preserve the attention span of, of my children and anyone that I can affect as long as possible. And, you know, we didn't get on these devices until we were much older. Right. So what is this doing to today's youth well, and what's going to happen to tomorrow? So I, I'm very, very vocal about it and I'm not on Twitter and I'm not on Instagram and I'm not on Facebook. And I mean, it could, cost me my career, but I, I believe in it. I believe in this. And so I don't know how it manifests itself, but something well, I'm, I'm strongly, strongly talking about often. Well, we don't know what the ramifications are yet. You know, there's studies coming up now that the blue light from these devices is, is affecting people's sleep. Um, mm-hmm. you're talking about addiction. Um, you know, we, we don't know the full ramifications of what these devices are doing to our health. Right. And, and I think it just drives the point home is that technology really is neutral and it's all about context because you're absolutely right for somebody, for say an, an able-bodied child, um, you know, it, it, it could be a detrimental effect. Um, but, you know, for somebody who say relies on it as a piece of AT, it's, it's completely the opposite. It's, it's actually helping them interface with with the world better, you know, it's, it's, it's giving them access to information rather than, um, restricting it. It's, it's helping them interface with, with the outside world almost more so than, uh, say somebody who's able-bodied, who's actually kind of going inward into their phone. So I don't know. It's, it's, it, Oh, absolutely. There has to be a mix and technology also will allow people to stay in their homes longer and be independent longer. There's so many positive aspects. So I guess that's really where I'm headed as well in, in the work that I'm doing and the products that we work with and the clients we work with is if we can actually enable people to have healthier lives and to be more social. I mean, mm-hmm. that's the goal. And right, I, I, right. I would prefer to work on those projects rather than the new a new game coming out, right. yeah. you know, for yeah. instance. And you know, way back when, oh gosh, I'm going to really date myself, but it was 97. Right. I started a company with two friends called kidscamp.com with, with K's, kids camp with a K. Right. And we designed one of the first virtual kids camps that they had. And our sponsors were Microsoft and National Geographic. And basically the kids would log in and they would be put into uh, groups of cabins and they would have a counselor and then they would engage in all these activities each day. Some of them were scavenger hunts across websites where we would have our partner sponsors hide certain things on certain pages of their website right. and they could find it. Uh-huh. And then they would have some chats. And I, I used to previously, I ran all the AOL chat um, groups back in the day for, for Warner brothers and AOL. So I knew about community and the thing that affected me the most was a story about a little boy who was in a hospital and he said it was his first camp he had been able to attend Mm -hmm. and there would be no other way he could do it. Mm -hmm. And that just, Oh my gosh. I thought if we can even out this platform and allow all kids to participate in different ways, then that that's, that's really going to be something. And at one point we opened at midnight, the doors opened at midnight. We had a thousand kids come through to register. Wow. And I was, I wasn't able to at the time with my two partners to monetize it and get funded. And so we moved on eventually, but the years that we did that and created that environment for these kids was just so amazing. And now of course I have a different take on it cause I don't want to encourage people to be online, <laughs> but, um, but, but at the time it was so powerful yeah. to be able to allow someone to have that experience. So yeah, there's a time and place for it all. Yeah, yeah. and we still talk about you know the the um, social media aspect of community as well on our show. You know, without stuff like face Facebook and um, you know Twitter, some some people with disabilities would be kind of locked in. You know, they don't have a way of reaching out to other people or feeling like they're part of a community. 
So there, yeah, that's right. There is some benefits there. Oh, absolutely. I, yeah. I am not mm-hmm. denying yeah. the benefits of, uh, of the community aspect of it. And, you know, there's that uh, the addiction, the addictive quality of mm-hmm. wanting to see how many people looked at your page or, <laughs> well, yeah, or yeah. to see who's responded or commented. Yeah. Um, and, and really, you know, you know, that, that is, that's a, that's a corporate decision. You know, there's, there's a real psychology to the way that they built the apps and they've constructed it to get people back sure. and to to feed into that what do they call it the dopamine loop right same, same with yeah, facebook exactly um you know and that's a little bit nefarious you know because you know again they want they want people on their app they want they want those the, the ad revenue so you know it, it's almost like the the technology itself is not the problem it's just the way that um, you know, the last, whatever, 10, 15 years, the, the way that they've been structured in order to monetize those, those processes. So hopefully going forward, maybe we can course correct on some of that stuff, hopefully. And, you know, and maybe it will just take, you know, they, this, this, this idea of digital addiction to get to a point where, you know, there, there's some real pushback against some of these companies. Yeah. And there's, I think there's definitely pushback happening already and everyone's so overwhelmed that they're just responding to the things that have emotional appeal to them. And some of it might be community oriented. Some of it might be positive feedback or, you know, just different things that they're connected to on that emotional level. And that's why a lot of the work that we do, we try and get down into the deeper level of interaction, understanding how people and why people interact with the things that they do and what that connection means to them. And yeah, that's the differentiator. I I, I use the word authentic this weekend, but it really is that emotional connection you have with a brand experience or product or, Mm. or, you know, even the company that keeps you coming back. Um, You know, there was a funny, uh, it just, you reminded me of something about the community aspect and with Twitter, I will date myself again, but I was part of a small group that we were blogging at the time. And I I had a go to mobile blog. My last name works well with all these different (laughs) companies. Um, So go to mobile, it was actually did well. And so I got invited up to, to Microsoft and we actually got to see the surface before anyone else. And ironically it was right before the iPhone came out. So um, it didn't do as well, Mm. but they were really excited and they wanted to, I guess, introduce it to some bloggers, you know, just to have us give our take on it. Right. And so somebody that came up with me, his name was Evan Williams. And, um, he, I guess, I don't know if you know who he is, but he actually is one of the founders of Twitter. Okay. Yes. Yeah, of course. And so he was on a bus and I might be getting the story kind of wrong because it was a while ago, but one of my other friends, Tontek said, Oh, you should try this thing that Evan created. It's called Twitter. And I said, Oh, okay. So we're on the bus driving to see the surface or meet with Bill Gates or something. And so I, I get on the service. And so all of us that were on the bus and a few others, including Derek Featherstone, who I just mentioned before, were in this small group and we were about 30 of us, maybe 40. And we all texted to each other and it was just the best experience ever. (laughs) And we were a little family and we were nerds. And at the time, these are the people, you know, that you can now name that started CSS and started, you know, accessibility and microformats and Twitter. But at the time we were just a group of people that wanted to communicate. Mm -hmm. And that was my use case for Twitter and why I never opened it up to followers. Right, right. I never, like, I don't have, I mean, I finally was forced, you know, someone said, hey, you should open it up. And and I I don't tweet very often, if, if, if ever. But it was because I loved it as a small group of people that wanted to be in touch with each other. Right. And and now there's different forms for that. But, but it was really exciting at that time. So that was really you know, in the beginning of it all. And I could understand that use case and no, did I, I had no idea that it was going to be used in this way, you know, moving forward. And I don't deny that it has impact at a global level, Sure, but yeah. we just have right. to keep everything in check and balance and just make sure that we're 
you know, everything in moderation, right? Yeah, there's definitely a time to unplug and just think, you know, turn everything off and just kind of evaluate where you are and what your priorities are. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's sort of the fascinating thing. I think that, you know, I think that we'll look back at all the social media platforms, um, hopefully from a better place in like, say, 10 years and and just look at their trajectory they took and <laughs> hopefully we'll be like okay we need to learn our lesson from that because mm-hmm. i i think you're absolutely right moderation is the key and part of the problem is that moderation i don't know that moderation is in their their vocabulary at the moment you know it's all about we need to become as big as we possibly can we've got these other platforms breathing down our neck we we need the most users we need the most ad revenue and you know, not to sound too cynical, um, but uh, that's kind of how it feels. And, and until I think that there there is a bit of a, a groundswell and, and real some real pushback against, which I, I think you're right. I think we are seeing now. Um, you know, I, I think that that's going to be what what encourages them to to change. Hopefully. Yeah. Well, we we see the ups and downs, and this has been an upswing for technology for some time, but it does come to a point where companies have to show actual revenue. And so I understand the need to monetize and that that companies and organizations can't pay people. And I mean, if they can't pay people, they can't continue. That's right. So, so we understand that. And it does frustrate me that in the, the world where people need the most help. and, And that's why right now I'm excited to be focusing on the opioid crisis and some of the other medical and healthcare issues that are happening. Right. There's not as much funding because the audience is not a mass consumer audience. Right. And so we look to small grants and nonprofits to, to fund the work that we're doing, the work that's so important. And, you know, it is, it is disappointing. And, and I still, you know, definitely have corporate clients and we work in mass electronics and consumer world. And and sometimes it feels meaningful only because maybe we're we're helping to introduce some of the features and solve needs that people didn't know they had. Right. And so maybe that's 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 a great experience. I mean, we do co-creation and I mean it <sighs> But it is frustrating that we can't have that level of impact where it needs to be the most to have the most yes. impact on everybody. So, so yeah, I, I hear you. Yeah, it's definitely well. It's why you're what you're doing is so important. I'm really impressed. I'm going to go listen to all the rest of your shows now. <laughs> <Uh-oh>. oh, oh. <laughs> pull them down, pull them down, Rob. Yeah. <laughs> well, you, yeah, you know, it's. Uh, it, it's it is frustrating because I, I even feel like and again I'm, I'm coming off as such a cynic today and I don't mean to because usually I'm the optimist just ask right <laughs> but but uh, I, I even do feel like the the big surge that we have with assistive technology you know the smartphones and you know and and the digital assistant the voiceover and how much that that can apply to assistive technology it's kind of a fluke I mean it's kind of just pure luck that there is this mainstream technology that has all this mainstream potential that also happens to be handy for people who are say, you know, who are suffering from vision loss or, or whatever. Um, it, it's, it's kind of a happy, happy coincidence. Yes. To and, a degree. And, and if, if, because yeah. if it, if it was, if they were, if they had to just design for that one niche market, there's just not a lot of companies that, that can keep the, the lights on trying to to develop for a small niche market and that's just the nature of business but i do think that more ceos you know i look at satya nadella at microsoft right now in the last five years the accessibility push he's been pushing that company towards i think is making other ceos take notice and the industry is changing for the better that's true well if accessibility and ada compliance means that there's more of a universal reach for the content and APIs exist to be able to spread it out across different devices and it's easier for voice enablement, then it's going to be a win-win because that's going to work for the corporations. It's going to be more universal. That's right. 
And then, like we said, if it works, you know, for a disabled audience in it, then it works for a situationally disabled person, Mm -hmm. then it's going to be something that will, I think, have a positive effect on the identity of that company. That's right. So then, you know, also with responsive design and web design and kind of one web fits all, we've gotten away from a mobile for mobile first environment. And Mm -hmm. instead we're looking at enabling, you know, a a single experience and then having it display in different ways. So you can look at even CSS and understand how content displays itself. And again, as we get into voice technologies and chats and things like that, I think that having a simpler experience is going to be so much more helpful. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the brand experience and the idea of videos and visuals and embedded uh, animations and all kinds of things, I think it is making way to simpler and accessible and direct experiences. Right. And so hopefully that will continue. Yeah, I mean, probably the, the, biggest, uh, the biggest message that you can sort of send to 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 companies, the biggest lesson that they can learn about universal design that's really going to make an impact on, on their decisions going forward is the fact that universal design and making, making a product or a service, something that works for everybody at the end of the day is going to benefit everybody. It's, it's not just catering to one niche market. And, you know, again, you go back to the, the example of, of closed captioning. I mean, uh, even text messages, text messages were first developed for, for people who are deaf. Um, right. you know, there's, there's so many, so many things that, you know, on, on its surface may have been developed for as, as a piece of assistive technology that the mainstream has in, you know, benefited from incredibly. So, um, you know, even something like, you know, audio description of, of video content, um, don't get me started. Yeah, I know there's, (laughs) there's a big, there's a big push, uh, here right now to where it's, it's the the CRTC here in Canada is, is trying to mandate primetime, um, primetime television is, is being mandated to, uh, to, to offer up four hours, four hours of, of, of primetime. Well, Brian, tell me about that. Is that. I want you to get started. Just tell me a little bit. How does that affect you? <laughs> oh, it affects me in a way that I can't sit and watch and enjoy TV programs with my wife every night. Uh, um, you know, I, I hear the dialogue, but I don't know what Ross and Rachel are doing on Friends or whatever show I'm watching, right? There's so much content that somebody who's visually impaired misses. We've had uh-huh. closed captioning since 1930 or whatever it's been. And yet we have these media companies that are still fighting against descriptive video. And I just do not understand why it's not mandated and why, uh-huh. why they can't get the descriptive audio tracks from the studios or have you know, a third party do the descriptive narration and get that out. And maybe it's something with you know, scheduling. This has to air at a specific time and date. We can't, we can't do it. But I think the technology is there. The companies are there that there's no reason in the 21st century that every program can't be audio described. Yeah. Okay. I mean, so, we even, we even have experiences. I, I, I believe you. And I, <laughs> I want to make a change. How can we change that? You know, even here in Canada where, where some of the theaters, um, the movie theaters will offer up a uh, video description. Um, cause there, there is there, every movie that comes out has is, uh, a, a audio descriptive track produced with it. But you go to the movie theaters and a lot of times the equipment that um, uh, a visually impaired person would would use to to get that audio description is broken or the staff doesn't know how to use it. Or, Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just it's 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 this it's it's just it's something that really hasn't really been baked fully yet, I feel like, or really hasn't been embraced by by the companies. And and I'm sure that part of it has to do with the fact that it's it's a lot more expensive to produce than um, closed captioning. Um, and you know, the time crunch that a lot of the, the, um, the stations feel, mm-hmm. you know, I can, you know, I can relate to, but I, I think that again, we need standards and we need some of this stuff to be mandated. We need to hold their feet to the fire because it does make a huge difference yeah. for somebody, um, with vision loss, who's, who's, you know, I'm, the, their again, enjoyment of, of a program is, is much improved. Again, I'm a consumer. Oh, yeah. 
I pay the same cable fees as somebody cited, and yet I don't have access to the same quality of service. Right. You know, so, so I think that that's, you know, certainly uh, something that, that needs to be pushed forward um, in terms of, you know, uh, media content for sure. We've got alt tags on the on the web. Yeah. We've we've got that battle one pretty much. <laughs> but uh, although, let me go on a little mini a mini Twitter rant about that. I mean, it wasn't all that long ago that they just built in mm-hmm. that functionality yep. into Twitter to be able to alt tag images uh, an, an image. Yep. But oh, wow. they have still yet to turn that option on. By default. You, yeah, I think you have to actually go into you the actually have, and turn it on. You have to go into the Twitter settings yeah. and turn that that setting on in order to be able to alt tag pictures, and that makes no sense to me. Yeah. Oh, yeah, no one will know how to do that, or <laughs> they will have no nope. so, knowledge. So, yeah, you know, we've, we've still got a, a ways to go yet, So, but, but things are getting better. Yeah. Sorry. Well, it's to... so interesting because from my world, we hear ADA compliance, and it's instantly equated to... 30 to 40% more budget. And it's interesting because there's a number of companies that I've worked with and obviously government entities and educational entities, and it's just a, a mandate. And we design, you know, with those, with those types of standards in mind. And then there's companies that want kind of that combination of what they consider to be brand experience. But then when we say ADA compliant, they all of a sudden might balk and, you know, we have to come in at a certain budget as well. Sure. And so there's not always the budget needed to QA at that level where it can be considered ADA compliant. So I wonder if there's any other way to incentivize corporations and companies relaunching sites and building out new, you know, I'm going to different, th- you know, content so that it's not a scary thing and an expensive thing because it really is expensive to be ADA compliant. I, and I can understand all of that, but you take a company like Amazon, Jeff Bezos got more money than God. And yep. here in Canada, Amazon Prime Video has no audio description in the US. Wow. In the US, it does. So, okay. you know, ADA or not, Amazon's not compliant. So yep. <laughs> I'm sorry, but no, actually yeah, that know. makes sense. It makes me feel better because yes, Amazon can afford it, especially if they already have it in the U S and yep. it's English, Absolutely. right? So yeah. they don't have to exactly. deal with translations and, yeah. um, that's, mm-hmm. yep. And we find that a yep. lot in Car- here in Canada, there's services in the U S that have audio description or have ABC and in Canada we don't. Yeah. Okay. You interesting. Know, same, same content, but different different access. And, yep. and really, I think that part of the solution too is that, because I know Netflix is is generally pretty good about, especially about their original content that yep. they produce, they're pretty good about uh, having audio described yep. content. Um, you know, really the, the, the um, lapse here has been broadcast television. Mm-hmm. Um, they're the ones that are really kind of pushing back uh, against these mandates because their argument is, well, you know, we, we maybe will we'll get a piece of content from the content creator 72 hours before broadcast. So right. we re- don't really have time to produce um, an audio description for this. I can, I can somewhat sympathize, but at the same time, you know, a mandate's a mandate. And, you know, if you're going to, if you're going to broadcast this, we, you know, we need standards. So it, it yep. could be that once, not to be too much of a futurist, but hopefully one day when broadcast television maybe is somewhat of a thing of the past mm-hmm. and it, maybe that will take some of the pressure off that right i hope so i think I, I i would love to hear if you guys could change i mean one thing right now relating to universal design or relating to these kinds of changes that you think could be made at a corporate level you know what would it be and closed captioning of course is some of it but is there one thing that you would change today if you could um i guess just the mentality or, or the realization that People with disabilities are consumers as well. Mm -hmm. We have dollars to spend and they're missing the mark. Yeah, I I think that I think that audio description would really is a big one. I think that if if a lot more content had that option, um, it it would mean a lot for for the, the, the community. Um, but also mobility. I mean, we talked, we, we sort of hit a little bit a, a, about it uh, earlier. Autonomous cars. I think mm-hmm. that would really change the game. 
Well, and again, yeah. you know, just coming back to audio description again, I don't know how many times, you know, Kelly, you may be in the kitchen cooking. You could have an audio description track going on in another room and still, you know, following along as to what the characters are doing on the TV. It's not just dialogue, right? Yep. You're getting yeah. the full the full action in the scene. So there's benefits for everybody. Yeah, that for sure, yeah. specifically. Yeah. I actually I actually have a, a confession in that I sometimes hide my iPad in the kitchen and I use my uh, little AirPods mm-hmm. yep. <laughs> and I, I hide them under my hair and then I actually listen to podcasts or, you know, some kind of news or something while I'm cooking. Yeah. And yep. my, my girls don't know I'm doing that. <laughs> <laughs> and so I, I do, I do that actually a lot in the kitchen, but, um, no, this is very, very interesting and why I was focusing on the aging 2.0 movement mm-hmm. because there's so much money there. Yeah. So oh my gosh, people yeah. can actually look at the numbers and see what the population is doing, not just in the U.S., but globally, and what is happening with at-home mm-hmm. needs for assist- assistive technologies. And so my idea was, okay, well, we have an actual number that corporations are able to look at and they can see revenue models. And also the buying audience isn't just for the older generation. And the older generation, mind you, is 65. And a lot of 65-year-olds are running marathons around me. (laughs) So this is not that old. Um, And a lot of their kids are also the ones that are shopping. Mm -hmm. So not, you know, if we think about looking at, I like that you say AT, assistive technologies, uh, for maybe a mass consumer audience, you know, a lot of people would benefit from this closed captioning people that are, you know, getting older, they're low vision. A lot of people at lighthouse for the blind were low vision and especially at night. So maybe they, they could be semi-functional, you know, and could see during the day, but as soon as it got dark, nothing. And, um, you know, there's a, there's a lot of use cases for this that we can design for and create an optimal experience and then, again, apply it outward. Right. So I, I definitely think that the more focus we can have on telling these stories and talking about the benefits and then relating that benefits to corporations and saying, look, you have to think about these things. I mean, this is a platform that I would love to be on and I would love to be able to focus my efforts on making a single change happen Mm -hmm. because that's really how things are going to move is one thing at a time, you know? Yeah. So yeah, it's really great to talk to you guys about this stuff. Yeah. Well, listen, uh, thanks so much for, for coming by and and chatting with us. Uh, it's, it's been fascinating and, um, would you come back? Yeah, please come back. Oh yeah. I I would love to do something and actually say, Hey, I have the story to tell you. I actually, made a change happen. I mean, wouldn't that be great? That would be great? I think that's the most frustrating thing about what I do is we do all this research. And like you said, you bring it up to the corporations, you say, here's what you need to do, but you don't actually, you can't always make that change happen. Right. And so my goal is to make change and make it happen in a way that benefits a lot of people. And so at that point, I would love to come back and talk to you guys about it. That'd be and maybe beforehand. That's fine too. This is a great conversation. <laughs> it is. It's fascinating. And you know, and it's, it's fast. Again, it's fascinating to talk to somebody who's had been on the inside track to all of this stuff. So it, listen, before you go though, if anything that you want to plug any, any, anything that's, that's going on, where can people find the, the company? Oh, well, I mean, it's go to media. G-O-T-O and then media.com and then go to research is the, the, the ethnographic passion piece. Go to research.com. And, you know, I, I don't have all that much to plug other than we're really working hard to solve one problem at a time. And right now we're going to be focusing on medical and healthcare. And the opioid crisis is a big piece of our world right now. And so that's something that we're dealing with. Um, you know, looking at that space right. and assistive technologies. I mean, I I hope to stay in touch with you guys and I want to find other ways that I can impact that space. So okay. thank you. Thank you very much. Listen, take care and best of luck with, with everything. And uh, let's talk again. Okay. Thank you. Hey, Kelly. Wow. That, that was a good conversation. Yeah. It's nice to have somebody on who's really, you know, kind of in the trenches, Doing in all the, the research. Tr- she built know. the trenches. <laughs> She's not just in them. Wow. It's fascinating to talk to somebody who had like an insider's view of all that. Yeah. 
Uh, and the yeah. work that, that they do is, is really, really deep. Cool. I mean, and it's a, it's a fascinating field too, because, you know, nobody really know when you, when anybody sees the, you know, the, that UX, mm-hmm. like nobody knows what that means. No. You know, the, the idea of a user experience is such a invisible process when it's done properly and done well. Yeah. And when it's not, then people just will we'll blame the product. And, you know, let's rewind that back to 2007. What, like she talked about, the iPhone came out. Well, the blindness community was like, well, how am I going to use this flat yeah. piece of glass? Yeah. The first iPhone didn't have accessibility built in. Yep. And that was the number one question. Well, great. It's a piece of glass. How am I going to be able to use yeah, this? Yeah, that's right. Right. So then move forward a couple of years and the 3GS came out and we had voiceover. The whole user experience changed. Yeah. Right. Yeah, it makes you wonder what what they're working on right now. Because mm-hmm. if you think about how, you know, she was saying in two thousand one, two thousand two, they're they're talking they're talking about things like uh, Google Maps usability now. Right, right. That's what they were. That that was sort of the the thing that they were striving for. They're trying to figure out well, what the what can we gas do? Station? Yeah, the- like what can we do with that? And we we, we take all those things for granted yeah. now. I mean, they were talking about those things fifteen years ago. So. Yeah. That fascinates me. So it makes you wonder like, well, okay, well, what are they talking about right now? Like what, who's somebody somewhere is working on something that's, that's going to be a, a mainstream technology in 10 years. I can tell you what it is. I what? know, I know. What? Mind control. No, mind control. <laughs> We've got voice access on smartphones. We've got smart assistants in our homes. No, we know what it's going to be. It's going to be a wearable. <laughs> There's going to be some sort of a wearable that's going to really move the ball forward, I think. I think that's where yeah, things are going. Yeah, once they find the, the recipe for it. Oh, I'm sure they're working on it. I'm oh, sure they're sure. cooking it right now in the oven, my friend. Yeah. But... Uh, fascinating stuff. Hopefully we can get her on again, uh, and have another conversation. Cause I feel like we could have talked to her for like three hours. Well, and I think, you know, we, we touched on the aging 2.0 topic that she wanted to talk about and we never really we, talked yeah, about We didn't that. dive so into that's that. that's a whole different discussion. Yeah, absolutely. Well, listen, big thanks to her for taking some time out of the day to talk to us. Yep. Two idiots. <laughs> <laughs> Who have just been shown we don't do a lot of work. <laughs> what do you mean? We work. We work. We work full time. We're all about assistive technology inclusivity. But then you know we have guests like Kelly come on and yeah, just kind of put true. us what have, back in our place. <laughs> what have we done? What have we done to improve the world? <laughs> What'd you do today, Rob? <laughs> Nothing to improve the world. Yeah. Sorry, world. <laughs> I would if I could. We'll I try. We'll try better. <laughs> well, listen, on Friday we'll post this podcast and we'll make the world a slightly better place. Absolutely. Maybe. Yep. Yeah. Anyways, uh, hey Ryan, I'm Rob, where can people find us? They can find us online at atbanter.com. You know, now I'm a little worried. She did say she was going to go back and listen to all the older episodes. Know. Now, I think we may never hear from her again. <laughs> it's going to be just like Tinder. No, it'll show sure her that we have a her. sense of humor. And I hope casual, so. And all I right. think she appreciates that. Maybe, hopefully. Uh, they can also <laughs> drop us an email if they so desire. Cowbell at atbanter.com. They can also find us on Facebook, atbanter, and Twitter, at underscore banter. And Instagram. Instagram. Yeah, we, we changed it up there. We did. Yeah. Wow. Look yes. at us on the fly. <laughs> we changed the world. We changed. We changed. <laughs> there's hope. <laughs> uh-huh. There's always hope, my friend. All right. Well, that's going to about do it for us this week. Thanks, everybody, for listening in. Big thanks to Kelly Goto. And we will see everybody next week. This podcast has been brought to you by Canadian Assistive Technology, providing low vision and blindness solutions across Canada. Find us online at www.canastech.com. That's C-A-N-A-S-S-T-E-C-H dot com. Or call us toll free at 1-844-795-8324. For all your assistive technology servicing needs, call Chaos Technical Services at 778 778- 847-6840 or find them online at chaostechnicalservices.com Whoa, look at that. Master of the one take.